الجزيرة بودكاست Digital IDs for people in Indian-controlled Kashmir Sounds cool and modern, right? Depends on who you ask Many Muslim Kashmiris are actually worried those IDs will be used to increase security surveillance Hello and welcome everyone to the Essential Middle East podcast. I'm Sami Zaydan. Let me give you some context first because it's not as simple as it sounds. Kashmir is a region split between the control of India, Pakistan and China. Indian-administered Kashmir long enjoyed autonomous status. But in 2019, the Indian government of Narendra Modi scrapped it. India's decision to revoke the decades-old special status of Jammu and Kashmir by rescinding Article 370 of the Constitution, which granted the disputed territory limited autonomy since 1947. Then the same government introduced laws that many Kashmiris view with deep suspicion. Let's dissect all of this now with our guest. Thank you, Sami. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Dr. Farhan Mujahid Chak. I'm the Secretary General of the Kashmir Civitas organization based out of Canada, but I'm joining you here from Doha. Great to have you with us. Let's start with the beginning then. The news is these days new digital IDs, right? Why is it making some Kashmiris really nervous? The reason why the indigenous people of Kashmir feel so threatened by this new initiative, by the what they refer to as the colonial entity, is because of the biometric mapping of the entire space. And the possibility for abuse is just so astronomical. And look, frankly, we don't have a very good relationship here between the people and the rulers. But hang on. The Indian government says these digital IDs are simply to improve access to welfare, subsidized grains. It's about improving livelihoods. That is absolutely how that they've typically tried to whitewash the laws under this kind of false bogey of terrorism, under the bogey of development. As a matter of fact, there are right now bulldozers inside what we refer to as Indian-occupied Kashmir, but the local people they refer to it as Indian-occupied Kashmir. And those bulldozers were brought in under a developmental program for construction. But they are being used at home demolitions. So the local people do not believe what is official Indian policy and what they claim to be doing, which is to benefit the local population. Every colonizer views the local population as a threat. And I think this is where the major difference is where the local people view the Indian state as a colonizer, the Indian state has tried to project itself as dealing with terror and dealing with development and women's rights. And of course, we believe is just an attempt to obfuscate the reality. There's another issue going on with the authorities saying, though, that they're trying to take state land and they're being confronted, they say, by violent protests. People throwing 
stones and trying to stop the demolition drive. Well, they're trying to resist, right? And what's happening is the local people are trying to resist. What the Indian state is claiming, very much like the Dogra rulers, which were the British-supported militarily regime that had taken control over the disputed territory of Kashmir and had enacted a variety of land laws in which all land belonged to the Dogra state. So the Indian government now is trying to reverse some of the land laws that were passed in the 50s and 60s and to reclaim all land as theirs. It's really just an act of dispossession and encroachment. And this is what people see it for what it is, Sammy. All right, let's take it back to the discussion about IDs, though. Sure. What is it about, if we look at the history of the use of IDs, Mm -hmm. is there a pattern that these IDs actually sometimes increase surveillance and repression? It's funny you mentioned that because that's exactly what we found out, meaning the local population, when there was a sting operation. An Indian organization had tried to access some of this biometric data of Kashmiris, and it ended up in the hands of the RSS, which is the Rastriya Savayam Sevak Sangh, which is a part of the Hindutva fascist organization. And this wasn't done by a local Indian organization, and they had disclosed that all of this organization had access to all this information. Now, I wanted to bring in something here that's important to highlight, that the demographic change. There's approximately 2.5 million Kashmiri families. All of them are going to have a digital identification. One of the problems is just like Jammu and Kashmir reorganization bill that allowed for the domicile certificates. So it's basically granting all non-Kashmiris the rights of locals. There were 4.1 million fake domicile certificates made. And this statistic is coming from Indian sources that have commented on this brazen type of demographic flooding. So there is a wealth of information to verify all of this. We'll get into the demographic question, but I'm sure the authorities would point out that, hey, there is a broader program throughout India, not only in Kashmir, and it's about improving the Digital India program. It's about improving governance. Is Kashmir really being targeted by special measures? Specifically for Kashmir, I believe, and I think there's reason to believe, that it's going to be used to manipulate who gets this identifier. And then based on that, who gets to vote? If you want to look at the context from 1989 to now, then more than 100,000 people have died. Mm. There is one million Indian soldiers, paramilitaries, and mercenaries patrolling the streets. This is not a normal situation. This is not a situation in which people are free to speak. The local flag, there's a ban on now raising it. So this is deeper than simply the absence of a federal data protection law. That wouldn't fix things, I'm guessing, from the perspective of Kashmiris. It would not. Because of the deaths, the context here is one of mass graves, rape, mass surveillance, and the disputed territory of Jammu and Kashmir is the most militarized geographical space on the planet. In this context, 
to come forward with an idea that we're out to help people is just outrageous. You have tens of thousands of people that are in prison. You have people that are thrown in prison for no crime. Journalists, Asif Sultan, Fahad Shah, human rights defenders, people only speaking of human rights, not even speaking about the political issues. Khurram Parwiz, Yasin Malik, who are in jail. There are reports by human rights groups. There was one by five different UN experts who wrote to the Indian government on March the 31st, 2021 about extrajudicial killings, torture, enforced disappearance and arbitrary detention. So I guess it's part of the picture, at least, of why people get scared when you talk about digitizing them. That's the context that needs to be brought forward. Even the language, Samuel, like, for example, before August 5th, 2019, Amit Shah used a phrase. That phrase was very harrowing. It was the final solution that we are going to bring forward, meaning the Hindutva government, the BJP-led government of Modi, that we are going to bring a final solution for Kashmir. And then he was called out by opposition members within their own parliament. Why are you using this type of a language? And this brings us to another calculated plan, I would say, on how to treat the Kashmir issue vis-a-vis from the Indian perspective, which is to completely disempower the local population, threaten genocide. Look, I don't say this to be alarmist. Genocide Watch, reputable NGO, has issued two genocide alerts for the disputed territory of Kashmir. Two. That can't be something that can just be glossed over. Human Rights Watch says Indian forces are maiming, blinding and killing people in occupied Jammu and Kashmir. In a statement, the international watchdog asked India to completely stop using pellet guns on unarmed civilians in the valley. International human rights groups like Amnesty International, they said it in a report in September 2022, how civil society is being increasingly targeted with repression. That, those are the terms they use. It's also that backdrop that makes people afraid that any ID system is going to be part of a pattern of increasing repression, particularly of civil society. Look, they're being hit the hardest because their voices are what terrifies the colonial state so much. So people that have impeccable reputations, Khurram Parwes, award winners of peace from such organizations like Rafto and others, and Parvez Imroz and Parvina Ahangar, who is the chairperson of the Association of the Disappeared, and her own son was disappeared. There are countless civil society activists that have nothing to do with any violence whatsoever, but they are being threatened and targeted and imprisoned. And this is what, this is the context from which this digital identifier can be seen. And this explains why the locals are so terrified of what it means. What recourse do you have to justice? Because I've been reading some of the reports like Human Rights Watch, August the 2nd, 2022 report. They do talk about violations on free expression, peaceful assembly, but also lack of accountability. Talk to us a little bit about the Armed Forces Special Powers Act. How does that give security forces effective immunity? Basically, they can do anything they want, and they don't even have to answer for it. 
And you know what really came out? There's five separate laws, and Amnesty International called the collectivity of all the laws, including the law that you mentioned and the PSA and the UAPA. These different laws amount to one thing, that the army can do whatever it wants and can't be questioned. So if you were to kill what they would refer to as terrorists or anyone resisting the Indian state, then you would be entitled to an award. So there is a whole academic genre now in Kashmir devoted to understanding the fake encounter that random people have killed. There is a growing set of concerns over a wave of killings targeting Hindus in India and administered Kashmir. Police say that the attacks in the Muslim-majority region are being carried out by anti-India militant groups. Human rights groups like Amnesty International in its September the 2nd, 2022 report have also documented an increase in unlawful killings committed against the minority Hindu community. So we've got to see the problem in the full context, right? There is an issue with armed groups also armed Kashmiri groups attacking other civilians from different minorities. I want to come here at this point and give you a statistic from the Indian government that at the height of the rebellion and resistance, there was no more than a 1,000 resistance fighters. And at this moment, they constantly say there's no more than, I think the exact number is about 217. Now imagine, for 217 people, you're going to bring in the largest concentration of military personnel in a given area in the world, it doesn't add up. And about the killing of the local Kashmiri pundits, absolutely unacceptable. But isn't that the justification, though, for the Indian government to take very strict, harsh security measures to counter what they call Kashmiri terrorist groups? But this is what I wanted to talk about. So let's talk about numbers, right? So since 1990, this is, again, these are Indian sources on how many pundits have actually been killed from 1990 to now, and it's less than 100. So what's the source for that? Sammy, the source for that is India Today, a major newspaper in India, and it comes from a government, official government statistic that says 89 Kashmiri pundits have been killed since 1990 until now. All right, that's a perspective. We're going to need to take a break now, though, so we'll be back in a moment to continue this chat. This week on The Take, has ChatGPT taken over my job? The pluses and minuses of this AI technology around the world. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about demographics. It's been three years since the Constitutional Autonomy Clause was revoked for Kashmir. That's right. What has happened since then? It's been the most difficult in Kashmir's history. Situations got worse. On every indicator. There were promised peace and security, economic stability, neither of which has happened. So what you are seeing happening is a type of cultural appropriation, a type of demographic flooding, fear and panic. Well, now in India and occupied Kashmir, up to 25,000 people have been granted bogus domicile certificates, raising fears of the beginning of a demographic change. New Delhi's law makes it possible for people from outside the territory to become permanent residents. 
Kashmiri leaders say the rule is aimed at changing the Muslim-majority status of occupied Kashmir through illegal Hindu settlers. Is that linked to the 2020 domicile law? Why are so many people feeling that this is an attempt to change the demographic balance of Kashmir? There is the popular imagination of what Kashmir means to people outside, and there is also what it means to India. Now, for whatever reason, India as a state has always felt that it wants to own Kashmir, tries to invent a history in which Kashmiris were forcibly converted to Islam, and now they're going to try to force them back into Hinduism. So this is a part of the Hindutva narrative on the people and the place, that they were Hindus that were forced to become Muslim. All right. Talk to us a little bit about these new laws, because I think that's interesting. It, it changes the requirements for how you're classified as whether you're a Kashmiri resident or not, right? Sammy, these are ethnic people. This is not like American being American or being a Canadian or being from the UK, where you can be from any ethnic group and then you can have citizenship. These are old societies in which ethnicity was very clearly understood. And then you would have different ethnic groups within a region. But what was happening essentially is that the Kashmiri people have never identified as Indian in all of human history. Never. But let me reiterate, 4.1 fake domicile certificates. Now, when I say domicile certificates, I'm referring to a stamp of approval that will allow you to claim to be bona fide Kashmiri from the disputed territory. Moves to try and redraw the electoral constituencies in Jammu and Kashmir, which prompted some people to say, basically, this is empowering the non-Muslim voice in Jammu Kashmir. Okay, so five distinct regions of the disputed territory. The main in which the majority of the population resides is the Valley of Kashmir. That has a population of about 8 to 9 million people. And that population is 99% Muslim. Right. Then there is what is Gilgit Baltistan. There is Azad Kashmir. There is Ladakh. There is Jammu. These boundaries on the Indian side have constantly changed through this gerrymandering. And they've pushed tens of thousands of people into the region, giving them this domicile or residency to allow them to claim to be Kashmiri and then vote. So I honestly believe this is preparations, and they're not coming into the valley, by the way. They're coming into the outskirts of Jammu. Okay, now let me take things from the Indian perspective. They would say, no, this simply recognizes people who've been living enough years in Kashmir to be considered residents now. Part of the issue is even going back, the threat. There's one thing somebody coming into your home or your space and sharing. It's another when you have this violence, when you have this long history of what they consider occupation and dispossession, when you have this military presence, then it cannot be seen outside of that context, Sammy. You cannot look at giving these certificates to non-Kashmiris, because very rightly they'll be concerned, are these people going to decide the future of what is Kashmir when they don't belong here? This is sounding very familiar, isn't it, when you compare it to patterns in other parts of the world. Let's listen to this clip of an Indian diplomat talking about what he thinks India can learn from Israel. 
I don't know why we don't follow it. It has happened in the Middle East. You have to look at the if the Israeli people can do it, we yeah. can also. Yeah. yeah. I think we should yeah. just follow from there and push our leadership. To do that. Somebody spoke about the Jewish issue and the Israel issue. They kept their culture alive for 2000 years outside their land and they went back. I think we all have to keep away, uh, the Kashmiri culture alive. The Kashmiri culture is the Indian culture, it is the Hindu culture. So, Farhan, India drawing inspiration from Israel? I think this relationship is only beginning to be uncovered. The first book written on this was actually by a very far-sighted scholar named Mohammed Hamid, who talked about the Indo-Israeli unholy alliance, I believe published in 1978. Now what we see is very blatant in front of us, the terminology that's being used, house demolitions. After August 5th, 2019, one of the effects of annexing the disputed territory and rubbishing all the treaties and the UN resolutions that were passed before is the right of return. So my family, Sammy, my father was born in the disputed territory, right? And he was a refugee. And they were pushed out in the Jammu genocide. The Jammu genocide happened between August and late November 1947. And in those months... 237,000 people were killed. Others talk about upwards of 500,000 people were killed. Now, not enough has been talked about this, but this is the context of the beginning of the Indian control over the disputed territory. A half a million dead. So I guess this is the background for, I guess, why people are afraid that ID cards are going to be used to solidify control over where people can go, where they can live, where they can't live. Absolutely. And we've seen a scenario in the Palestine-Israel conflict where IDs have become very controversial for the reason of controlling who can live where and provoking allegations of you're stopping me from living in my ancestral homelands. Absolutely, and they rely on one another too. And there's a lot of literature on this now about the bromance between Netanyahu and Modi. And it's actually quite disturbing the type of far-right radicalism that has taken over the state of Israel is the same type of Hindutva fascism that has taken over India. And they are mimicking each other's patterns. It's not the same. There's a very right-wing ideology, but they're clearly two very different Zionism versus the RSS. I get your point. What do you make of the position of the Arab and Muslim world in all of this? What we see now throughout the Arab world is a recognition of what is this deepening relationship between India and Israel. I think that post-August 5th, 2019, the Arab world has been reawakened to the threat of Islamophobia in India and to the crimes that it's committing in disputed territory of Kashmir. Look, the bottom line is now, there have been three wars between India and Pakistan over Kashmir. Where is this going? Is there any kind of engagement process? Or is this just a conflict that's suspended in frozen land? It's a conflict that's going to blow up. I think it's going to be worse than the last three. I think that what we have now is a nuclear flashpoint. I actually think that we should also bring in the broader U.S.-China rivalry. The rivalry, specifically China and India, border issues and India being a frontline partner 
of the U.S. against China. There are a lot of spicy ingredients Absolutely. in the boiling pot for sure. We could go on forever. So Farhan, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. This episode was co-produced by Salah Eliafe and our intern Nada Shakir. Sound design is by George Ilwir and our recording engineer is Hamdi Aoun. Our engagement producer is Ayal Malik and our assistant engagement producer is Munira Dosari. Our executive producer is Omar Saleh. Ney Alvarez is the head of audio. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. For now, it's goodbye.